Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Monday. We're glad you're with us on the Three Martini Lunch. It's been quite a weekend, and we'll catch you up a bit, although I'm sure you've had plenty of time to follow along if you're actually hunkering down and social distancing. You've probably had plenty of time to keep up with the headlines, given all the plans that have been canceled in the last several days and in the weeks going forward. Uh, We today have no good martinis. We have bad, bad, and crazy, which is also bad. And uh, the good news is today, Jim, that we're sponsored by Hydrant. Drinkhydrant.com is where you want to go. Enter the promo code MARTINI for 25% off your first order at checkout. So, uh, Jim, we thought we were headed towards a relief bill. Uh, The U.S. Senate, Republicans in control, of course, taking the lead on this. And it looked like Republicans and Democrats were actually behaving themselves, getting along. Uh, Big government uh, opponents might not like what was in it in some cases, but uh, there seemed to be a lot of consensus on what needed to be done, including direct cash to American citizens. Other folks wanted assistance for businesses in there to keep their payrolls going and so that there'd be actual jobs for people to go back to when this is all over. Uh, Well over a trillion dollars. Some say it might even get to $2 trillion. Looked like we were on uh, pace for a vote to pass cloture last night. But then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said, nope, we're not just going along with this. Uh, The Democrats in the House are going to do their thing. Here's NBC News' Tom Costello on the Today Show explaining what happened. On Capitol Hill this morning, Republicans and Democrats remain at odds over spending. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell blamed House Democrats after a procedural vote on the Senate measure failed Sunday evening. The Speaker of the House shows up, and we're back to square one. Nancy Pelosi firing back. Democrats want more money and better protections for affected workers and their families. We'll be introducing our own bill, and hopefully it'll be compatible with what they discuss in the Senate. But McConnell faces another major hurdle, with Rand Paul becoming the first U.S. senator to test positive for the virus, and several other Republican senators now in self-quarantine. So, Jim, this is getting complicated. You've got loggerheads now between the House run by Democrats, the Senate run by Republicans, and oh, by the way, we've got a handful of Senate Republicans now quarantining themselves because Rand Paul has coronavirus and others are uh, keeping their distance out of precaution here. So Republicans might not even have a functional majority here. Yeah, this is bad on, on in multiple fronts in many ways. First of all, let's note the contrast between the first relief bill uh, that the House introduced and passed and the Senate pretty much passed it as is um, because at that point, everyone seemed to have you know broad agreement. Speed was of the essence. I spent a lot of time on the editor's podcast last Friday making the point that this is not the time to spend a lot of time demanding a perfect bill. Uh, It really feels like there is a lot of lawmakers who are operating on kind of the late 2008 model of we can't be bailing out these businesses, except the businesses aren't, you know, this wasn't uh, Lehman Brothers or any of the Wall Street banks making reckless investments or anything like that. When the government says people are not allowed to visit your business for reasons of public health, none of those businesses did anything wrong. None of them were reckless. And even if you want to make the argument of, oh, you know, they should have a financial cushion. First of all, let's face it, a lot of these businesses, including restaurants and bars and cafes and stuff like that, operate on pretty thin margins. But then the second thing is, you know, nobody has a plan for what if they shut down the entire government. It is not reasonable to expect businesses to just hunker down um, and, and weather this. You know, this is why you're seeing the mass layoffs. And there's a rather frightening chart 
uh, put out early this morning showing the number of uh, claims for unemployment year by year. As you'd expect, it spiked during the Great Recession, very gradually came down, been pretty darn low for the last couple of years. And then it went up like a straight line, like, you know, straight up, not even, you know, no, no curvature to it uh, in a one week period up to the peaks of the Great Recession. This is a huge economic storm hitting us. And the point I've been, the drum I've been trying to beat on this is, guys, let's do this fast. Yes, is, is this a, by the way, is doing something fast a formula for, for uh, smooth and perfect policy? No, but this is not a time where you have time to sit around and discuss what the, per, what the perfect policy to get money into the hands of, of American businesses is. Um, one of the more intriguing ideas I saw from James Pathakoukas was, uh, the idea of having the government for small businesses underwrite 80% of the income if they could guarantee no layoffs or furloughs for workers. Whatever form will do this fast, do it. But each day you spend debating this is another day that more businesses are going to say, you know, we, we're not going to be able to make rent. We're not going to be able to make any of this stuff. We've already laid everybody off. We're out of business. We've got, we're declaring bankruptcy. And it is deeply, deeply frustrating. I, I could do a both sides are, are to blame here type line. And obviously, you know, it takes two to tango. But in this case, it looks pretty clearly. Nancy Pelosi looked at this, didn't say she wanted a bunch of tweaks. She says she wanted to scrap everything Senate Republicans had done, start over with her version of the bill, Senate Democrats, every last one of them lined up behind her. And this was exactly what the country did not need at this point. You saw the markets freaking out. It is a reflection of how much Democrats on Capitol Hill have gotten used to the fact that the media will cover for them when they make a move like this. If the situation was reversed, Republicans would be, being, be accused of being hostage takers and willing to destroy the economy in order to get their goals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the report is that Nancy Pelosi wanted solar panel funding in there and all kinds of under, unrelated things. This is not the time to see an economic relief bill as a Christmas tree where you get to put on every you know, policy proposal you've ever wanted and stick it in there. Um, it is unbelievably reckless. The only reason they're doing this is because they think the media is going to cover for them. As we saw in that NBC coverage, it's not so clear <laughs> that the media is going to do this for them. Um, although we did see the, the headline on the New York Times rapidly mutate and change like it was the coronavirus um, rapidly over the course of last night. Because the initial one pointed out, Democrats blocked the bill. By the time people hear this, maybe they've, they've dislodged the logjam. But if not, it is rather revealing that Mitt Romney, you know, that 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 notorious Trump uh, enthusiast uh, is denouncing Senate Democrats full throatedly on this. I mean, it is it, Mitt Romney is so angry about this. He's using contractions. <laughs> and uh, Jim, you mentioned the headline fiddling that The New York Times and, and others did. And that was certainly one to uh, make us roll our eyes yesterday. But if you look at the actual story. The Times leads off with Senate Democrats on Sunday. Senate Democrats on Sunday blocked action on an emerging deal to prop up an economy devastated by the coronavirus pandemic, paralyzing the progress of a nearly $2 trillion government rescue package they said failed to adequately protect workers or impose strict enough restrictions on bailed out businesses. In voting to block action, Democrats risked a political backlash if they are seen as obstructing progress on a measure that is widely regarded as crucial to aid desperate Americans and prop up a flagging economy. Now, for the New York Times to write that about Democrats, that's about as scathing as it gets. Like you said, if it was Republicans holding things up, uh, the language would be much more harsh. But the fact that they're at least going that far is better than I expected. Yeah, I, I think, you know, even even the all but the most partisan folks look at this and say, hey, guys, now is not the time to hold everything up with your desire for this proposal or that proposal or something like that. The point we're emphasizing in the, the editor's podcast Friday was, let's assume that you put a lot of money out the door 
And some of it ends up in the hands of Americans who we already consider to be wealthy or who have enough of a financial cushion to withstand this crisis or it goes into the hands of big corporations. You can always go back and tax them later, right? We can always take steps to fix this later on if we really feel like it was that severe a problem. What we can't do is bring back the businesses that go out of business today. And we can't do it if they go out to business tomorrow, right? I think the argument is that the earliest you could, government could put money in people's hands, looks like April 6th. For a lot of people, rent and the mortgage is due April 1st. It seems like an astounding lack of awareness of how much the clock is ticking. Late last week, I'd had the attitude of, you're going to hear a lot of people, oh, Congress is bickering or, or you know, not wanting to waste money is not necessarily a, a bickering. Um, this is not dithering. This is not indecision or something like that. This, this is, you know, I understand these things matter, but this is a crisis that's really not like anything else we've ever faced before. And in a circumstance like this, this is when speed matters. And like I said, we have time to fix the other problems down the road. Uh, some people don't get that. And some people really seem to think this is the moment to maximize their leverage for their, you know, petty, uh, petty policy goals, which is, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see how many members of Congress seem to think the only the other party will get blamed. Jim, quick exit question on this. Uh, we know that uh, it's always been practice on Capitol Hill that you have to be personally present to vote. But now that you've got folks who are either diagnosed with coronavirus or, and there've been a couple in the House as well, uh, and other folks who are quarantining themselves out of an abundance of caution, and other folks who are in the at-risk demographic, you know, older folks who are serving on Capitol Hill, is it time, at least under these circumstances, to allow remote voting? Folks are very reluctant to uh, change things uh, that have been always done the way they're being done. But is this the time to change that, at least for the time being? Greg, I was kind of surprised they didn't have a plan for this already. Uh, you would think after 9-11, uh, the possibility of either, I, I guess every plan for uh, continuance of government had expected the ability for lawmakers to still be together, whether they were going to some remote mountain somewhere or some underground bunker or something like that. Um, it, it was really kind of striking that they didn't have a plan for this. Now, here's the thing. I'm not quite sure why you couldn't have everybody teleconference in, uh, do the roll call over a giant you know, conference call or something like that. So I, I, there have got to be workarounds. I know people are saying, well, we've never done this before and would that be constitutionally okay or something? Look, this is an emergency. <laughs> You got to work this stuff through. Uh, you know, you're already seeing jokes about Rand Paul going to the floor of the Senate in full biochem hazard suit or something like that. Hopefully, it won't come to that. But I think if we don't, you know, if Congress has not spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to hold a vote in a situation where not everybody can be at the same place at the same time, it's time for them to develop a plan for that immediately. All right, Jim. Well, one of the ways to stay healthy, uh, whether you're self-quarantining out of an abundance of caution or you're just um, wanting to make sure you don't get the coronavirus, one of the best ways to do it is to stay hydrated. And did you know that 75% of us are walking around every day just chronically, chronically dehydrated? We're suffering needlessly from things like frequent headaches, energy slumps, poor focus, and yes, weakened immune systems, but it doesn't have to be this way because Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets that you can just mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes that your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. They all help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day long. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There are no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. 
The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or pick a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply, and you can save even more with a monthly subscription. And right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners, you can get 25% off your first order, and you can do that by going to drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code martini at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code martini for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code martini. All right, Jim, uh, let's move on to our second bad martini here because right now we're in this 15-day window. We're kind of right in the middle of it where if everybody hunkers down, we feel like we can tamp down the curve here and, and get to the end of this sooner rather than later. You had the Surgeon General out there today saying this week's going to be a lot worse than last week. So everybody really needs to follow the guidelines if you don't want to be doing this for, for months on end. But uh, some states are already going to more draconian measures with the total lockdowns. We talked about California last week. New York's doing it because they obviously have a lot of cases. Connecticut, New Jersey, I believe Illinois is doing it now. A lot of folks here in Virginia are hoping Ralph Northam doesn't do that at his 2 p.m. press conference today, but there are some rumors that he will. Uh, nonetheless, uh, folks are wondering, well, if we do this for a few weeks, will we get past the worst of it and be on with our lives here by sometime in May or even June? That's not the message being given by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who's actually gotten a lot of bipartisan rave reviews for his daily briefings on this. And what he said yesterday, I think, is going to raise a lot of eyebrows and discourage a lot of people. Here's what he said. This is not a short-term situation. This is not a long weekend. This is not a week. Uh, the timeline, nobody can tell you. It depends on how we handle it. Uh, but... 40%, up to 80% of the population will wind up getting this virus. All we're trying to do is slow the spread, but it will spread. It is that contagious. Again, that's nothing to panic over. You saw the numbers, unless you're older with an underlying illness, etc. cetera. Uh, it's something that you're going to resolve, but it's going to work its way through society. Uh, will manage that capacity rate, but it is going to be four months, six months, nine months. You look at China, once they really change the trajectory, which we have not done yet, uh, eight months, we're in that range. So there you have it, Jim. This could last as long as nine months and could still, even with all these precautions in place, uh, in fact, 80% of the population. Now, obviously, he's trying to make sure that that 80% doesn't end up sick all at the same time. If, you're, if it's going to happen, you want it to spread out so the system isn't overwhelmed. But if you've got people saying, I got to give up all this stuff, and almost everybody's going to get it anyway, that is a recipe for people just not obeying this at all. Yeah, it's fascinating because on Saturday morning, there was this post on Medium that was based upon, you know, reliable sources, data from the World Health Organization, Centers for Disease Control, um, all that kind of stuff, and made the argument that you know, I'm, I'm vastly oversimplifying it. It still said the coronavirus is very serious, but it raised the possibility that the cure is worse than the disease, that this, the likelihood of uh, the death toll being as severe as some of the uh, estimates were, were were not that likely, and that, in fact, the economic pain was probably going to be more likely to cause more deaths uh, and should not be underestimated. Within like a day, you had a decent, this is by a guy who was a data analyst over in Silicon Valley. It was not someone with a medical background. 
it was kind of unnerving that you know medium took it down without within 24 hours because i guess other virologists and medical professionals said this is wrong this is irresponsible etc cetera, etc cetera. and my colleague dan mclaughlin put a post in the corner who said that like look maybe it is incorrect and you know just like we always say you know the answer to, to bad speech is more speech the fact that this is basically no no you don't have the right authority for this therefore this must be taken down isn't really a reassuring approach that maybe this isn't you know an actually incorrect uh, analysis of this and that you know we need to have a uh, a more reasoned debate and and all that but you know look right now we're trying to choose somebody said do you want to be dead or do you want to be dead broke uh was one way of succinctly putting the choice before us I can understand why, you know, the idea of being alive but dead broke does not really appeal to lots of people. I think American, most Americans want to do the right thing. They want to help save lives and that they will sacrifice as much as they are able up until they are no longer able. And we discussed in that last, you know, Martini, the sheer number of people who are at risk of losing their businesses, at risk of losing their jobs. And that the thing that I think, you know, we don't get like, it's one thing, you know, you lose your job. Okay, if the economy is thriving, you go out and find another job. It's another thing to lose your job when the country is in, you know, you're, you're seeing numbers thrown around of anywhere from, you know, 20% unemployment. Some people said 30% unemployment. The idea of U.S. GDP dropping by one third. I mean, huge chunks of our economy are just fly, you know, frozen right now. So it, you know, it, if you're asking American people to sacrifice to the point of like literally not leaving their homes, and it's been fascinating to watch one state after another say not merely self-quarantine, don't go out if you don't, you know, if you don't have to, you know, it went from one, from a handful of states to several and it, this, you know, terrifying possibility that by the, you know, by this time next week, or, or maybe even within a matter of days, just about every state will have some variation of shelter in place laws. I was saying late last week, if this is the, the 1918 flu pandemic, if this is a once in a century threat, then, then level with us. But I just don't think what, you know, what Cuomo's floating around out here, the idea of Americans are going to stay in their homes for, you know, the better part of four months, five months, six months and, and beyond. I don't think, you know, like, Amer- first of all, the, the amount of self-inflicted economic pain at that point might just be unbearable. You know, Americans need to be pers- you know, persuaded just how many lives this is going to lead. I don't like seeing lawmakers speculate on camera. I think because they don't, you know, I realize they're trying to keep things, the, the possibility open of worse news and they don't want to be offering false hope and all of that. Um, I'm not sure the laying out the nightmare scenario um, is going to be all that helpful because I think if you do that to enough, a certain number of people are going to say, well, we're all we're going to die anyway, so I might as well go out and enjoy myself. I think that was kind of the attitude of some people on the beaches last week. Oh, by the way, Greg, I don't know if you saw, a significant number of spring breakers on the beach have now tested positive for the coronavirus. So way to go. We figured. All right. Well, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And one of the things that uh, we keep hearing, of course, is the guidance from the World Health Organization. It was huge news uh, when it uh, declared the coronavirus a pandemic uh, a couple weeks back. Uh, But as you chronicled on Friday for National Review, Jim, uh, the WHO seems to be doing a lot of covering for the People's Republic of China here. First of all, as you pointed out, that long after uh, Chinese doctors who were being punished for it uh, had discovered that there was human-to-human transition. Uh, The World Health Organization in early January saying, there's no evidence of human-to-human transition. Uh, Mid to late January, not long before President Trump banned flights from China directly into the United States, the World Health Organization saying, oh, there's no need to restrict travel. And now the World Health Organization is celebrating along with China, just taking as fact China's contention that it has no new coronavirus cases already. So 
if that's true, that's a good thing, Jim. But there's no reason to believe it's true based on China's track record. And the WHO seems pretty gullible here. Desperately wanting to do something useful this weekend and having no place else to go, uh, I spent a lot of time putting together a timeline of what we know about how the virus spread, uh, what kind of information the Chinese government and the Wuhan regional government, uh, local government were putting out about the virus, um, what the World Health Organization was saying, and what the U.S. knew. The United States government was not notified until January 3rd. Okay, that's about a month after the first cases started cropping up. Um, depending on when you count, and it's, you know, there's a, not an enormous amount of precision, the first recorded patient's first uh, symptoms occurred December 1st. The first person who died of the disease, uh, his wife caught it and the wife had never been anywhere near that seafood market, they believe, was the origination point. So by early December, some Chinese doctors were looking at situations and said, oh, wait a second, this person, you know, wasn't near any of these animals that they supposedly caught it from. How did they get it? Meaning the indication of human to human transmission. Certainly by, you know, mid-December, they were seeing an outbreak of people who were not at that. By mid to late December, it was getting clearer and clearer. Uh, and this is when you had the, the infamous uh, doctor who was uh, uh, brought into the police station and, you know, accused of spreading rumors and, and all of that stuff. I urge everyone to take a look at it. It was, I had a great number of holy expletive moments as I put all this stuff together. Um, the Wuhan Regional Health Commission, um, their statements are out there. All their statements are still up online. They're in Chinese, but if you run them through Google Translate, you can tell exactly what they're saying. And it was, we have no evidence of human to human transmission. That was a lie. Doctors in, in Wuhan, China, were seeing this and were coming to this conclusion and trying to warn each other. The local government and was sending, you know, and, and you know, in its statements, and the national government it was saying there was there's no risk of this. This is only being spread from animals to humans. Trying to lay out, and of course, the World Health Organization, pretty much until January 20th, when China came out and said, "Oh yeah, this can be spread from human to human," the World Health Organization did nothing to contradict this. China lied about this, and that's you know where I put you know responsibility point number one goes. But the World Health Organization basically went along with their assessments. Um, now, this may be in a question of access. On January 6th, the United States said, we'd like to send some of our own experts over there to help you. China said, no, thank you. They did allow two U.S. experts to go with a, uh, a World Health Organization team that went at the end of the month. Um, as I try to lay out in this timeline, by that point, it was well too late. If you were going to stop this, and look, granted, a contagious new coronavirus was always going to be difficult to contain and stop from spreading. That having been said, if, if the Chinese government had been honest about this, to, and, you know, and, and from the very beginning, if it had not suppressed doctors talking to each other, if it had treated this with the seriousness that it deserved, the fascinating thing I found in the course of the research, the city newspaper did not have anything on, about the virus on the front page from January 6th to January 20th. There's a two-week period in there in which the number of cases is growing exponentially. This, uh, there was a conference of the leaders of the province about, that included Wuhan around the, middle of the, uh, uh, around the middle of the month. No mention of the virus was made at that four-day conference. It is hard to overstate how much China clamped down on information about this at a time when it was needed most. Because they did that, there was never really any chance of stopping this. Based on past estimates we, of, of travel from Wuhan to the United States, we can estimate that about 4,000 people a month travel from Wuhan, China to various destinations in the United States. Right? If you don't stop this very early on, you have no chance of getting it. Trump said a whole bunch of stupid things about this early on. I'm not going to dispute that in the slightest, and I got my own beefs with this president. But 
there was never really any possibility for the United States to stop this unless they would have stopped all transit from China from the very first inkling of when they got this. And even by then, probably some people were already into the country. It is depressing and eye-opening, but the fact that the World Health Organization, I mean, this is, you know, where you start screaming, you had one job. This is what the World Health Organization is supposed to be there for. And at the exact time, we needed them to challenge the Chinese government's assessment of what was going on and the veracity of their statements that it could not possibly be transferred from one person to another. The World Health Organization said, yes, sir, and agreed. And because of that, we're dealing with all this now. And they're still agreeing. They're still not challenging anything, which is just incredible. And of course, uh, some folks are going to look at this and say, well, the World Health Organization, that's part of the UN. And guess who's always the bad guys at the UN? (laughs) So... uh, uh, we'll see how political that gets. But yeah, the WHO has uh, made some proclamations here, but they have not been nearly the asset that they were created to be. So, Jim, with all that cheery good news here on this Monday, I look forward to a... Uh, At another- least it's Friday, everyone. <laughs> Who am I kidding? The days can't be distinguished anymore. <laughs> another fun week of uh, home podcast for you. And uh, we, we are grateful to you listening. Every once in a while, you might hear some some chirping behind each of us as, uh, as we're hunkering down with our families here. But uh, do stay well, try to social distance and, and, and uh, stay away from others as best as you can. And uh, we'll be back here on Tuesday. In the meantime, don't forget our good friends over at Hydrant, drinkhydrant.com, promo code Martini for 25% off that first order. Also, please subscribe to our podcast, The Three Martini Lunch. Leave us a kind review. And remember that you can get those home devices to play our podcast as well. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Have a great day, everyone. We'll see you Tuesday.